Gonna eat, gonna drink, and we're gonna be merry. Halloween comes, gonna dress real scary. Witches hat and vampire tooth will walk through the haunted woods like we used to. I'll steal liquor from the store on the corner. I use swap jokes with the backslapping owner He's a friend of your mother He's a friend of your dad's daughters The second best friend you never had We're picking apples We're chasing seagulls We're doing things we'll only wish That we could do someday When we are older but we are younger now But if we keep it up I think we'll be okay Well the school we're attending Is gonna be torn down But they're gonna build a new one When money comes around but you can't put your trust in the government My dad's gonna tell you when he gets drunk again Oh, he's not abusive, but he's so damn lazy And if I stare at him, it's gonna drive me crazy I gotta run with you, honey, through the fields tonight Till the feet are washed by the morning light We're picking apples, we're chasing seagulls We're doing things we'll only wish that we could do someday When we are older, but we are younger now But if we keep it up, I think that we'll be okay If we keep it up I think it will be okay Halloween is over your costumes are in the closet. Your decorations have been stowed away for next year. Already your candy is starting to disappear. Already you're starting to get a bit of a headache from all the sugar you just shoved into your face. But fall is still here. Fall is still among us. The dead leaves aren't gone. They're still beautiful. Dead, but incredibly beautiful. The weather sometimes allows you to not even wear a jacket, although it's starting to get a lot cooler. That being said, there's a fire stoked right now. And we're going to sit by it, and we're going to share a story. Today's story, even though Halloween is over, is going to be a horror one. And it's from the great Edgar Allan Poe. Now before we continue, just a few facts about Edgar Allan Poe. And this I found 
not in a small, dirty, torn, ancient book by the fire or in the woods, but on the internet. Here are the facts. When Poe died, he was on his way to Philadelphia for an editing job. A week before his death, his doctor advised him not to travel. Also, speaking of travel, you need luggage when you travel. Poe could not remember the location of his luggage. Actually, his attending physician, John Morin, asked Poe where he had left his luggage, but Poe could not remember. Just a few weeks later, his cousin actually found a trunk of his possessions in Baltimore, and another trunk was found in Richmond. While his manuscripts went to his literary executor and editor, Rufus Griswold, Poe's sister and mother-in-law fought over his trunk. And just a few more. Four days before his death, Poe was found at a polling place on voting day. Poe's cats, they could not live without him. And after hearing of his death, his mother-in-law discovered, oh, this is awful, I love animals. His beloved tortoise cat, Katarina, had just died. I'm getting choked up. Also, this one's great. Here's the last one. It was Poe's enemy that wrote his obituary. I'll read it to you. Here's, here's what it, Not the obituary. I wish I had it. One of Poe's professional and personal rivals, Rufus Wilmot Griswold, wrote a lengthy obituary for his enemy that was so, just so awful that he actually signed it with a pseudonym. The article portrayed Poe as a man... A madman, a drunken, womanizing, opium addict, you name it, who based his darkest tales on personal experience. Oh man, I would not want to have a personal experience as dark as Poe's. But Griswold expanded his, this account into a brief memoir of the author, and Griswold's distorted picture of Poe actually influenced popular opinion on the author for over a century. Now that, my friends, that is the way that you become truly famous for a very long time after you're dead. Have your worst enemy... Write your obituary. Let's see if we can find that. Hold on. Let's see if we can find it. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Okay, I found some of it. No, this this might be all of it. Let's see. All right. Edgar Allan Poe died in Baltimore on Sunday last. His was one of the very few original minds that this country had produced. In the history of literature, he will hold a certain position and a high place. By the public of the day, he is regarded rather with curiosity than with admiration. Many will be startled, but few will be grieved by the news. Ooh, he's staying. He had very few friends, and he was the friend of very few, if any. Oh, I'd love to have that in my obituary. He was, let me repeat that. He had very few friends, and he was the friends of very few, if any. But his character and his adventures were too remarkable, and his literary merits too indub- indubitable to pass from the stage with the simple announcement already given. His family was a very respectable one in Baltimore. His grandfather was a quartermaster general in the Revolution and the esteemed friends of Lafayette. During the last visit of that personage to this country, he called upon the widow to tender her his acknowledgments for services rendered him by her husband. His great-grandfather married a daughter of the celebrated Admiral McBride. Through him, they are related to many of the most illustrious families in England. Edgar Poe's father was reputably brought up and educated, becoming enamored with a beautiful young actress. He made up a runway, runaway match with her and was disowned by his friends thereafter. 
This is just getting better. He or his wife possessed uh, mimetic genius. Mimetic, sorry. Whatever. And they lived precariously. They came to Richmond in pursuit of their profession. She was somewhat of a favorite on our boards, but more on account of her beauty than her acting. They both died in Richmond, both of consumption, and within a few weeks of each other, and left here without a house or home, their gifted but most miserable and unfortunate son, Mr. John Allen, a wealthy and kind-hearted merchant of this place, having no children of his own, taking a natural fancy to the handsome, clever child adopted him as son and heir. He was consequently brought up amidst luxury and received the advantages of education to their fullest extent. In 1816, he accompanied his adopted parents in a tour through England, Scotland, and Ireland. They returned to this country, leaving him at Dr. Bransby's High School, Stoke Newington, near London, where he continued five years. We're going to read the whole thing, okay? He returned in 1822 and continued about Richmond for two or three years. He was then remarkable for his general cleverness, his feats of activity, his wayward temper, extreme personal beauty, his mu musical recitations of verse, and power of extemporaneous tale-telling. That would look great on a job application. This isn't, the, this isn't the obituary anymore. This is me. You could put, I have the power of extemporaneous tale-telling. Write that down. If you want a job, write it down. All right, where were we? Ex extemporaneous, where are we? Okay, here we are. In 1825, he went to the University of Virginia. The university was then a most dissolute place, and Mr. Edgar A. Poe, was remarked as the most dissolute and dissipated young youth in the university. He was already a great classical scholar, and he made huge strides in mathematics, botany, and other branches of natural science. But at the same time, he drank, gambled, and indulged in other vices until he was expelled from the place. Edgar, come on. On Mr. Allen's refusal to pay some of his gambling debts, he broke with him and went off at a tangent to join the Greeks, those being the times of Basri's and the Greek Revolution, and when he reached St. Petersburg, however, he found both money and enthusiasm exhausted, and he got into a quarrel with the Russian authorities. Whether about liberty or lucre is not known. At any rate, he found himself nearly adding some knowledge of the Nout and Siberia to his already extensive knowledge of men and manners, and he was glad enough to accept the intervention of the American consul, Henry Middleton, and his aid to get home. In 1829, he entered the Military Academy of West Point. In the meantime, Mr. Allen had lost his first wife and married a lady by his junior by a very great number of years, he being 65. Yikes. Mr. Poe is said to have behaved uncivilly to the lady and to have ridiculed the match. The old gentleman wrote him an angry letter, and Mr. Poe, Mr. Poe answered it with a very bitter one. The breach was never healed. Mr. Allen died a short time afterwards and left Poe nothing. Mr. Poe left West Point without graduating, and here commenced his disastrous battle of life. In 1831, he printed a small volume of poems, his first brochure. They were fa favorably received by the reviewers and well spoken of by their few readers, but they did not sell, at which we have never wondered. He wrote for newspapers, compiled and translated for booksellers, made up brilliant articles for reviews, and spun tales for magazines. But although publishers willingly put forth they paid the young man so little that in poverty and despair he got abundantly near enough to death's door to, quote, hear the hinges creak, unquote. At last, a newspaper in Baltimore offered two premiums for the best poem and the best prose tale. A committee of distinguished literatures, 
John P. Kennedy at their head, was appointed to judge the productions. Of course, they did not read them, the sanction of their names being all that was wanted by the publishers. But while chatting over the wine at the meeting, one of them was attracted by a bundle among the papers written in the most exquisitely beautiful calligraphy ever seen. To the end of his life, Poe wrote his, this surpassingly perfect hand. So there's another fact. At the end of his life, he had really good handwriting. He read a page solely on that account, and being impressed with the power of the style, he proceeded to read aloud. The committee voted the premiums by acclamation, quote, to the first of the geniuses that has written a legible hand, unquote. The confidential envelope being broken, within it was found the then unknown name of Poe. The publisher gave Mr. Kennedy an, an account of the author, which induced him to see Mr. Poe. He described him at that day as a young man, thin as a skeleton from evident starvation, dressed in a seedy frock coat, buttoned up to his chin to conceal the want of a shirt, with tattered trousers and a pair of torn old boots, beneath which were evidently neither drawers nor socks. But his manners were those of a gentleman, and his eyes full of intelligence. Kennedy spoke in a friendly manner to him, and he opened his heart, told him all his story, his ambition, and his great designs. Kennedy took him to a clothing store, gave him a good suit, and introduced him into society. These were the days in which Thomas W. White was building up the messenger. He got Mr. Poe to edit it, giving him $500 per annum. I'm guessing the messenger is a publication because the M in messenger is capitalized. Anyway, back to the obituary. On this income, he immediately married himself to a girl without a cent. We regret to hear that he was generally intemperate, but he certainly found time to write many great articles and brilliant criticisms for the messenger. It was Poe who first gave the periodical its standing. After editing The Messenger a year and a half, he removed to Philadelphia and ended, edited the uppercase Gentleman's Magazine, both G and M are uppercase. For this last, he always continued to write and to be well paid, therefore. In 1840, so apparently he was no longer in want of a shirt. Sorry, that was outside of the obituary. Anyway, back to the obituary. In 1840, he published his tales of the grotesque and the arabesque. In 1844, we find him in New York editing the Broadway Journal. In 1845, the well-known volumes by Wiley and Putnam made their appearance. He continued to issue many things, which we shall notice more fully hereafter until 1847. We then hear of his wife dying in a state of great destitution at a place called Fordham near New York. A subscription was gotten up to relieve him by the literatures of New York and was easily raised. We next hear of him through newspapers as again at death's door but this time with delirium tremens, a bitter note through the same vehicles of intelligence in answer to the various inquiries made about him, announced his contempt for all who professed themselves as friends and his general disgust with the world. But he seems to have suffered nothing farther from destitution, his literary labors bringing him enough. For the last two years, he has been seen now and then about Richmond, generally in a state very unbecoming to a man of genius. But during his last visit, for nearly two months' duration, he has been perfectly himself, neatly dressed, and exceedingly agreeable in his deportment. He delivered two lectures, worthy of his genius, in his best words. It was universally reported that he was engaged to be married. The lady was a widow of wealth and beauty, who was an old flame of his, and whom he declared to be the ideal and original of his Lenore. When we last saw him, he was just starting for New York to publish a new collection of his tales. He had another errand. 
some rich woman named Mrs. St. Leon Loud had died, leaving her verses. Her husband, Mr. St. Leon Loud, wanted Poe to prepare them for the press, make a memoir. He knew nothing about them save their good price, and he was going to do it for the job. Death cut him short at Baltimore. The newspapers say he died of congestion of the brain. And that, my friends, was the obituary of the great Edgar Allan Poe, written by his archenemy, Rufus Wilmo Griswold. And now that we've read that, let's read one of his old short stories. This one's called William Wilson. It's a story about doppelgangers. There's a lot of good stuff about doppelgangers. Here's a very early example of that. Along with the title of this short story, William Wilson is also the song title of a great song by a pretty decent uh, alt-rock band from the late 80s, early 90s called William Wilson. But believe it or not, this story from Edgar Allan Poe came long before that. Anyway, grab a whiskey, grab a hot chocolate, grab some coffee, grab whatever keeps you warm. Come by the campfire, get yourselves cozy, get yourselves warm, get yourselves in a spooky state of mind, in a magical state of mind, and just sink deeply into this wonderful story by a wonderful writer. Here we go. William Wilson. Let me call myself, for the present, William Wilson. The fair page now lying before me need not be sullied with my real appellation. This has been already too much an object for the scorn, for the horror, for the destination of my race. To the uttermost regions of the globe have not the indignant winds brooded its unparalleled infamy? O oh, outcast of all outcasts, most abandoned, to the earth art thou not forever dead? To its honors, to its flowers, to its old golden aspirations, in a cloud, dense, dismal, and limitless. Does it not hang eternally between thy hopes and heaven? I would not, if I could, here or today, embody a record of my later years of unspeakable misery and unpardonable crime. This epoch, these later years, took unto themselves a sudden elevation in turpitude, whose origin alone it is my present purpose to assign. Men usually grow base by degrees. For me, in an instant, all virtue dropped bodily as a mantle. From comparatively trivial wickedness I passed, with the stride of a giant, into more than the enormities of an Ela Gabulas. What chance, what one event, brought this evil thing to pass? Bear with me while I relate. Death approaches, and the shadow which foreruns him has thrown a softening influence over my spirit. I long in passing through the dim valley for the sympathy I had nearly said for the pity of my fellow men. I would fain have them believe that I have been, in some measure, the slave of circumstances beyond human control. I would wish them to seek out for me, in the details I am about to give, some little oasis of fatality amid a wilderness of error. I would have them allow what they cannot refrain from allowing, that although temptation may have erewhile existed as great, man was never thus, at least, tempted before, certainly never thus fell. And it is therefore that he has never thus suffered? Have I not indeed been living in a dream? And am I not now dying a victim to the horror and the mystery of the wildest of all sublunary visions? I am the descendant of a race whose imaginative and easily excitable temperament has at all times 
rendered them remarkable. And in my earliest infancy, I gave evidence of having fully inherited the family character. As I advanced in years, it was more strongly developed, becoming for many reasons a cause of serious disquietude to my friends and of positive injury to myself. I grew self-willed, addicted to the wildest caprices, and a prey to the most ungovernable passions. Weak-minded, beset with constitutional infirmities akin to my own, my parents could do but little to check the evil propensities which distinguished me. Some feeble and ill-directed efforts resulted in complete failure on their part, and of course, in total triumph on mine. Thenceforward, my voice was a household law, and at an age when few children have abandoned their leading strings, I was left to the guidance of my own will and became an all-but-name, the master of my own actions. My earliest recollections of a school life are connected with a large, rambling Elizabethan house in a misty-looking village of England, where were a vast number of gigantic and gnarled trees, and where all the houses were excessively ancient. In truth, it was a dreamlike and soothing spirited place. That venerable old town, at this moment in fancy, I feel the refreshing chilliness of its deeply shadowed avenues, inhale the fragrance of its thousand shrubberies, and thrill anew with undefinable delight at the deeply hollow note of the church bell, breaking each hour with sullen and sudden roar. Upon the stillness of this dusky atmosphere in which the fretted Gothic steeple lay embedded and asleep. It gives me, perhaps, as much of pleasure as I can now in any manner experience to dwell upon minute recollections of the school and its concerns. Steeped in misery as I am, misery, alas, only too real. I shall be pardoned for seeking relief, however slight and temporary, in the weakness of a few rambling details. These, moreover, utterly trivial and even ridiculous in themselves, assume to my fancy adventitious importance as connected with a period and a locality when and where I recognized the first ambiguous monitions of the destiny which afterwards so fully overshadowed me. Let me then remember. The house, I have said, was old and irregular. The grounds were extensive and a high and solid brick wall topped with a bed of mortar and broken glass encompassed the whole. This prison-like rampart formed the limit of our domain. Beyond it we saw but thrice a week, once every Sunday afternoon when, attended by two ushers, we were permitted to take brief walks in a body through some of the neighboring fields, and twice during Sunday, when we were paraded in the same formal manner to the morning and evening service in the one church of the village. Of this church, the principal of our school was pastor. With how deep a spirit of wonder and perplexity was I wont to regard him from our remote pew in the gallery, as, with steps solemn and slow, he ascended the pulpit. This revered man, with countenance so demurely benign, with robes so glossy and so clerically flowing, with wig so minutely powdered, so rigid, so vast, could this be he who of late, with sour visage and in snuffy habiliments, administered, furl in hand, the draconian laws of the academy? Oh, gigantic paradox, too utterly monstrous for solution. At an angle of the ponderous wall frowned a more ponderous gate, 
It was riveted and studded with iron bolts and surmounted with jagged iron spikes. What impressions of deep awe did it inspire? It was never open save for the three periodical aggressions and ingressions already mentioned. Then in every creak of its mighty hinges, we found a plenitude of mystery, a world of matter for solemn remark, or for solemn meditation. The extensive enclosure was irregular in form, having many capacious recesses. Of these, three or four of the largest constituted the playground. It was level and covered with fine hard gravel. I well remember it had no trees, nor benches, nor anything similar within it. Of course, it was in the rear of the house. In front lay a small parterre planted with box and other shrubs. But through this sacred division we passed only upon rare occasions indeed such as a first advent to school or final departure thence. Or perhaps when a parent or friend having called for us, we joyfully took our way home for Christmas or midsummer holidays. But the house, how quaint an old building was this. To me, how veritably a palace of enchantment. There was really no end to its windings, to its incomprehensible subdivisions. It was difficult at any time to say with certainty upon which of its two stories one even happened to be. From each room to every other, there were sure to be found three or four steps either in ascent or descent. Then the lateral branches were innumerable, inconceivable, and so returning in upon themselves that our most exact ideas in regards to the whole mansion were not very far different from those with which we pondered upon infinity. During the five years of my residence here, I was never able to ascertain with precision in what remote locality lay the little sleeping apartment assigned to myself and some 18 or 20 other scholars. The schoolroom was the largest in the house. I could not help thinking in the world. It was very long, narrow and dismally low, with pointed gothic windows and a ceiling of oak. In a remote and terror-inspiring angle was a square enclosure of eight or ten feet comprising the sanctum, during hours of our principal, the Reverend Dr. Bransby. It was a solid structure, with massy door, sooner than open with the absence of the domine. We would all have willingly perished by the pain forte and dear. In other angles were two other similar boxes, far less reverenced, indeed, but still greatly matters of awe. One of these was the pulpit of the classical usher, one of the English and mathematical, interspersed about the room, crossing and recrossing in endless irregularity, where innumerable benches and desks, black, ancient, time-worn, piled desperately with much bethumbed books, and so beseamed with initial letters, names at full length, grotesque figures, and other multiple efforts of the knife, as to have entirely lost what little original form might have been there, the days long departed. A huge bucket with water stood at one extremity of the room, and a clock of stupendous dimensions at the other. Encompassed by the massy walls of this venerable academy, I passed, yet not in tedium or disgust, the years of the third lustrum of my life. The teeming brain of childhood requires no external world of incident to occupy or amuse it, and the apparent dismal monotony of a school was replete with more intense excitement than my riper youth had derived from luxury, or my full manhood from crime. Yet I must believe that my first mental development had in it much of the uncommon, even much of the ultra. 
Upon mankind at large, the events of very early existence rarely leave in mature age any definite impression. All is gray shadow, a weak and irregular remembrance, an indistinct regathering of feeble pleasures and phantasmagoric pains. With me, this is not so. In childhood, I must have felt with the energy of a man what I now find stamped upon the memory in lines as vivid, as deep, and as durable as the exergues of the Carthaginian medals. Yet, in fact, in the fact of the world's view, how little was there to remember? The morning's awakening, the nightly summons to bed, the connings, the recitations, the periodical half-holidays and perambulations, the playground with its broils, its pastimes, its intrigues. These, by a mental sorcery long forgotten, were made to involve a wilderness of sensation, a world of wrench incident, a universe of varied emotion, of excitement, the most passionate and spirit-stirring, ole bon temps, qui sale de faire. In truth, the ardor, the enthusiasm, and the imperiousness of my disposition soon rendered me a marked character among my schoolmates, and by slow but natural gradations gave me an ascendancy over all not greatly older than myself, over all with a single exception. This exception was found in the person of a scholar, who, although no relation, bore the same Christian and surname as myself, a circumstance in fact little remarkable, for notwithstanding a noble descent, mine was one of those everyday appellations which seem by prescriptive right to have been time out of mind, the common property of the mob. In this narrative, I have therefore designated myself as William Wilson, a fictitious title not very dissimilar to the real. My namesake alone, of those who in school phraseology constituted our set, presumed to compete with me in the studies of the class, in the sports, and the broils of the playground, to refuse implicit belief in my assertions and submissions to my will. Indeed, to interfere with my arbitrary dictation in any respect whatsoever. If there is on earth a supreme and unqualified despotism, it is the despotism of a mastermind in boyhood over the less energetic spirits of its companions. Wilson's rebellion was to me uh, the source of the greatest embarrassment, the more so as, in spite of the bravado, which, which, in public, I made a point of treating him and his pretensions, I secretly felt that I feared him and could not help thinking the equality which he maintained so easily with myself a proof of his true superiority. Since not to be overcome cost me a perpetual struggle, yet this superiority, even this equality, was in truth acknowledged by no one but myself. Our associates, by some unaccountable blindness, seemed not even to suspect it. Indeed, his competition, his resistance, and especially his impertinent and dogged interference with my purposes were not more pointed than private. He appeared to be, to be destitute, alike of the ambition of which urged and of the passionate energy of mind which enabled me to excel. In his rivalry, he, he might have supposed actuated solely by a whimsical desire to thwart, astonish, or mortify myself. Although there were times when I could not help observing with a feeling made of wonder, abasement, and pique, that he mingled with his injuries, his insults, 
or as contradictions a certain most inappropriate and assuredly most unwelcome affectionateness of manner. I could only conceive this singular behavior to arise from a consummate self-conceit, assuming the vulgar airs of patronage and protection. Perhaps it was this later trait in Wilson's conduct, conjoined with our identity of name and the mere accident of having entered the school upon the same day, which set afloat the notion that we were brothers among the school or senior classes in the academy. These do not usually inquire with much strictness into the affair of their juniors. I have before said, or should have said, that Wilson was not in the most remote degree connected with my family. But as surely if we had been brothers, we must have been twins. For after leaving Dr. Bransby's, I casually learned that my namesake was born on the 19th of January, 1813. And this is a somewhat remarkable coincidence. For that day is precisely that of my own nativity. It may seem strange that in spite of the continual anxiety occasioned by the rivalry of Wilson and his intolerable spirit of contradiction, I could not bring myself to hate him altogether. We had, to be sure, nearly every day a quarrel in which, yielding me publicly the palm of victory, he in some manner contrived to make me feel that it was he who had deserved it. Yet a sense of pride on my part, and a veritable dignity on his own, kept us always upon what we are called speaking terms, while there were many points of strong congeniality in our tempers, operating to awaken me a sentiment which our positions alone, perhaps, prevented from ripening into friendship. It is difficult indeed to, to define, or even to describe, my real feelings toward him. They formed a, a motley and heterogeneous admixture, some petulant animosity which was not yet hatred, some esteem, more respect, much fear, with a world of uneasy curiosity. To the moralist, it will be necessary to say, in addition, that Wilson and myself were the most inseparable of companions. It was, no doubt, the anomalous state of affairs existing between us which turned all my attacks upon him, and they were many, either open or covert, into the channel of banter or practical joke, giving pain while assuming the aspect of mere fun rather than into a more serious and determined hostility. But my endeavors on this head were by no means uniformly successful, even when my plans were the most wittily concocted. For my namesake had much about him in character of that unassuming and quiet austerity which, while enjoying the poignancy of his own jokes, has no heels of Achilles in itself, and absolutely refuses to be laughed at. I could find indeed, but one vulnerable point, and that, lying in a personal peculiarity, arising perhaps from constitutional disease, would have been spared by any antagonist, less at his wit's end than myself. My rival had a weakness in the fascial or guttural organs, which precluded him from raising his voice at any time above a very low whisper. Of this defect I did not fail to take what poor advantage Wilson's retaliations in kind were many, and there was one form of his practical wit that disturbed me beyond measure. How his sagacity first discovered at all that so petty a thing would vex me. 
is a question I, I never could solve. But having discovered, he habitually practiced the annoyance. I had always felt aversion to my uncourtly uh, patronymic, and it's very common, if not plebeian, pranimal. The words were venom in my ears. And when, upon the day of my arrival, a second William Wilson came to the academy, I felt angry with him for bearing the name, and doubly disgusted with the name because a stranger bore it. Who would be the cause of its twofold repetition? Who would be constantly in my presence? And whose concerns and the ordinary routine of the school business must inevitably, on account of the detestable coincidence, be often confounded with my own. The feeling of vexation thus engendered grew stronger with every circumstance, tending to show resemblance, moral or physical, between my rival and myself. I had not then discovered the remarkable fact that we were of the same age, but I saw that we were of the same height, and I perceived that we were even singularly alike in general contour of person and outline of feature. I was galled too by the rumor touching a relationship which had grown current in the upper forms. In a word, nothing could more seriously disturb me, although I scrupulously concealed such disturbance than any allusion to a similarity of mind, person, or condition existing between us. But in truth, I had no reason to believe that, with the exception of the matter of relationship and in the case of Wilson himself. This similarity had ever been a subject of comment, or even observed at all by our schoolfellows. That he observed it, in all its bearing and as fixedly as I, was apparent but that he could discover in such circumstances so fruitful a field of annoyance can only be attributed, as I said before, to his more than ordinary penetration. His cue, which was to perfect an imitation of myself, lay both in words and actions, and most admirably did he play the part. My dress, it was an easy-mattered copy. My gait and general manner were, without difficulty, appropriated. In spite of his constitutional defect, even my voice did not escape him. My louder tones were, of course, unattempted, but then the key, it was identical. And his singular whisper, it grew the very echo of my own. How greatly this most exquisite portrait harassed me, for it could not justly be termed a caricature. I will not now venture to describe... I had but one consolation in, in the fact that the imitation apparently was noticed by myself alone and that I had to endure only the knowing and strangely sarcastic smiles of my namesake himself. Satisfied with having produced in my bosom the intended effect, he seemed to chuckle in secret over the sting he had inflicted and was characteristically disregardful of the public applause which the success of his witty endeavors might have so easily elicited that the school indeed did not feel his design, perceive its accomplishment, and participate in his sneer was for many anxious months a riddle I could not resolve. Perhaps the gradation of his copy rendered it not so readily perceptible. Or more possibly, I owed my security to the masterly air of the copyist, who disdaining the letter, which in a painting is all the obtuse I can see, gave but the full spirit of his original for my individual contemplation and chagrin. 
I have already more than once spoken of the disgusting air of patronage which he assumed towards me, and of his frequent, officious interference with my will. This interference often took the ungracious character of advice, advice not openly given, but hinted or insinuated. I received it with a repugnance which gained strength as I grew in years. Yet at this distance day, let me do him the simple justice to acknowledge that I recall no occasion when the suggestion of my arrival were on the side of those errors or follies so usual to his immature age and seeming inexperience. That his moral sense, at least, if not his general talents and worldly wisdom, was far keener than my own, and that I might today have been a better and thus a happier man had I less frequently rejected the counsels embodied in those meaning whispers which I then but too cordially hated and too bitterly despised. As it was, I at length grew restive in the extreme under his distasteful supervision and daily resented more and more openly what I considered his intolerable arrogance. I have said that in the first years of our connection as schoolmates, my feeling in regard to him might have been easily ripened into friendship. But in the latter months of my residence at the academy, although the intrusion of his ordinary manner had beyond doubt, in some measure, abated my, my sentiments in nearly similar proportion, partook very much of positive hatred. Upon one occasion he saw this, I think, and afterwards avoided or made a show of avoiding me. It was about the same period, if I remember aright, that in an altercation of violence with him, in which he was more than usually thrown off his guard and spoke and acted with an openness of demeanor rather foreign to his nature, I discovered, or fancied I discovered, in his accent, his air, and general appearance, a something which first startled and then deeply interested me by bringing to mind dim visions of my earliest infancy, wild, confused, thronging memories of a time when memory himself was yet unborn. I cannot better describe the sensation which oppressed me than by saying that I could with difficulty shake off the belief of my having been acquainted with the being who stood before me at some epoch very long ago, some point of the past even infinitely remote. The delusion, however, faded rapidly as it came, and I mentioned it at, at all but to define the day of the last conversation I there held with my similar namesake. The huge old house, with its countless subdivisions, had several large chambers communicating with each other where slept the greater number of the students. There were, however, as must necessarily happen in a building so awkwardly planned, many little nooks or recesses, the odds and ends of the structure, and these the economic ingenuity of Dr. Bransby had also fitted up as dormitories. Although, being the merest closets, they were capable of accommodating but a single individual. One of these small apartments was occupied by Wilson. One night, above the close of my fifth year at the school, and immediately after the altercation just mentioned, finding everyone wrapped in sleep, I arose from bed and lamp in hand, stole through a wilderness of narrow passages from my own bedroom to that of my rival. I had long been plotting one of those ill-natured pieces of practical wit at his expense in which I had hitherto been so uniformly unsuccessful. It was my intention now to put my scheme in operation, and I resolved to make him feel the whole extent of the malice with which I was imbued. Having reached his closet, I noiselessly entered, leaving the lamp with a shade over it on the outside. I advanced a step, and listened to the sound of his tranquil breathing. 
assured of his being asleep, I returned, took the light, and with it again approached the bed. Close curtains were all around it, which, in the prosecution of my plan, I slowly and quietly withdrew, when the bright rays felt vividly upon the sleeper, and my eyes at the same moment upon his countenance. I looked, and a numbness and iciness, a feeling instantly pervaded my frame. My breast heaved, my knees tottered, my whole spirit became possessed with an objectless, yet intolerable horror. Gasping for breath, I lowered the lamp in still nearer proximity to the face. Were these, were these the lineaments of William Wilson? I saw indeed that they were his, but I shook as if it was a fit of the ugly, and fancying they were not. What was there about them to confound me in this manner? I gazed, while my breath reeled with a multitude of incoherent thoughts. Not thus he appeared, assuredly not thus, in the vivacity of the waking hours. The same name, the same contour of person, the same day of arrival at the academy, and then his dogged and meaningless imitation of my gait, my voice, my habits, and my manner. Was it in truth, within the bounds of human possibility, that what I now saw was the result merely of the habitual practice of this sarcastic imitation? Awe-stricken, and with a creeping shudder, I extinguished the lamp passed silently from the chamber, and left at once the halls of that old academy, never to enter them again. After a lapse of some months spent at home in mere idleness, I find myself a student at Eton. The brief interval had been sufficient to enfeeble my remembrance of the events at Dr. Barnsby's, or at least to effect a material change in the nature of the feelings with which I remembered them. The truth, the tragedy of the drama was no more, I could now find room to doubt the evidence of my senses, and seldom called upon this subject at all but with wonder at the extent of human credulity, and a smile at the vivid force of the imagination which I hereditarily possessed. Neither was this the species of skepticism likely to be diminished by the character of life I had led at Elton. The vortex of thoughtless folly into which I there so immediately and so recklessly plunged washed away all but the froth of my past hours engulfed at once every solid or serious impression, and left to memory only the veriest levities of a former existence. I do not wish, however, to trace the course of my miserable profligacy here, a profligacy which set at defiance the laws which had eluded the vigilance of the institution. Three years of folly passed, with, they passed without profit, and had given me rooted habits of vice, and added, in a somewhat unusual degree, to my bodily stature, when after a week of soulless dissipation I invited a small party of the most dissolute students to a secret carousel in my chambers. We met at a late hour of the night, for our debaucheries were to be faithfully protracted until morning. The wine flowed freely, and there were not wanting other and perhaps more dangerous seductions, so that the gray dawn had already faintly appeared in the east, while our delirious extravagances was at its height. Madly flushed with cards and intoxication, I was in the act of insisting upon a toast of more than wanted profanity, when my attention was suddenly diverted by the violent, although partial, unclosing of the door of the apartment, and by the eager voice of a servant from without. He said that some person, apparently in great haste, demanded to speak with me in the hall. Wildly excited with wine, the unexpected interruption rather delighted than surprised me. I staggered forward at once, and a few steps brought me to the vestibule of the building. 
In this low and small room there hung no lamp, and now no light at all was admitted, save that of the exceedingly feeble dawn which made its way through the semicircular window. As I put my foot over the threshold, I became aware of the figure of a youth about my own height, inhabited in a white cursimere morning frock cut in the novel fashion of the one I, I myself wore at that moment. This is the faint light that enabled me to perceive, but the feature of his face I could not distinguish. Upon my entering, he strode hurriedly up to me, and seizing me by the arm with a gesture of petulant impatience, whispered the words, William Wilson, in my ear. I grew sober, perfectly sober, in an instant. There was that in the manner of the stranger, and in the tremulous shake of his uplifted finger, as he held it between my eyes and the light, which filled me with unqualified amazement. But it was not this which had so violently moved me. It was the pregnancy of solemn admonition in the singular, low, hissing utterance. And above all, it was the character, the tone, the key of those few simple and familiar, yet whispered syllables which came up with a thousand thronging memories of gone days, and struck upon my soul with the shock of galvanic battery. Ere I could recover the use of my senses, he was gone. Although this event failed not of a vivid effect upon my disordered imagination, yet was it evanescent as vivid. For some weeks, indeed, I, I busied myself in earnest inquiry, or was wrapped in a cloud of morbid speculation. I did not pretend to disguise from my perception the identity of the singular individual who thus perversingly interfered with my affairs, and harassed me with his insinuated counsel. But who and what was this Wilson? And whence came he? And what were his purposes? Upon neither of these points could I be satisfied, merely ascertaining in regard to him that a sudden accident in his family had caused his removal from Dr. Bransby's academy on the afternoon of the day in which I myself had eloped. But in a brief period I ceased to think upon the subject, my attention being all absorbed in a contemplated departure for Oxford. Thither I soon went, the uncalculating vanity of my parents furnishing me with an outfit in an annual establishment, which would enable me to indulge at will in the luxury already so dear to my heart, to vie in profuseness of expenditure with the haughtiest heirs of the wealthiest earldoms in Great Britain. Excited by such appliances to vice, my constitutional temperament broke forth with redoubled ardor, and I spurned even the most common restraints of decency in the mad infatuation of my revels. But it were absurd to pause in the details of my extravagance. Let it suffice that among spendthrifts I, I, I outheroded Herod, and that giving name to a multitude of novel follies, I added no brief appendix to the local and long catalogue of vices than usual in the most dissolute university of Europe. It could hardly be credited, however, that I had even here so utterly fallen from the gentlemanly estate as to seek acquaintance with the vilest arts of the gambler by profession. And having become adept at his despicable science, to practice it habitually as a means of increasing my already enormous income at the expense of the weak-minded among my fellow collegians. Such nevertheless was the fact and the very enormity of this offense against all manly and honorable sentiment proved beyond doubt the main, if not the sole reason, of the impunity with which it was committed, who indeed among my most abandoned associates, 
would not rather have disputed the clearest evidence of his senses than having suspected of such courses the gay, the frank, the generous William Wilson, the noblest and most liberal commoner at Oxford, him whose follies, said his parasites, were but the follies of youth and unbridled fancy, whose air is but inimitable whim, whose darkest vice but a careless and dashing extravagance. I have been now two years successfully busied in this way, when there came to the university a young nobleman, Glendinning, rich, said report, as Herodes Atticus, his riches too as easily acquired. I soon found him a weak intellect and, of course, marked him as a fitting subject for my skill. I frequently engaged him in play and contrived with the gambler's usual art to let him win considerable sums, the more effectually to entangle him in my snares. At length, my schemes became ripe. I met him with the full intention that this meeting should be final and decisive at the chambers of a fellow commoner, Mr. Preston, equally intimate with both, but who, to him, did justice, entertained not even a remote suspicion of my design. To get to this a better coloring, I had contrived to have assembled a party of some eight or ten, and was solicitously careful that the introduction of cards should appear accidental, and originate in the proposal of my contemplated dupe himself. To be brief upon a vile topic, none of the low finesse was omitted, so customary upon similar occasions, that it is a just manner for wonder how any are still found so besotted as to fall its victim. We had protracted our sitting far into the night, and I had at length effected the maneuver of getting Glendining as my sole antagonist. The game, too, was my favorite at carte. The rest of the company, interested in the extent of our play, had abandoned their own cards and were standing around us as spectators. The parvenu, who had been induced by my artifices in the early part of the evening to drink deeply, now shuffled, dealt, or played with a wild nervousness of manner for which his intoxication, I thought, might partially, but could not altogether account. In a very short period, he had become my debtor to a large amount, when, having taken a long draught of port, he did precisely what I had been coolly anticipating. He proposed to double our already extravagant stakes. With the well-feigned show of reluctance, and not until after my repeated refusal had seduced him into some angry words which gave a color of pique to my compliance. Then did I fully comply. The result, of course, did but prove how entirely the prey was in my toils. In less than an hour he had quadrupled his debt. For some time his countenance had been losing the florid tinge lent it by the wine, but now, to my astonishment, I perceived that it had grown to a pallor truly fearful. I say to my astonishment. Glendining had been represented to my eager inquiries as immeasurably wealthy, and the sums which he had as yet lost, although in themselves vast, they, they could not, I suppose, very seriously annoy much less so violently affect him. That he was overcome by the wine just swallowed was the idea which most readily presented itself. And rather with a view to the preservation of my own character in the eyes of my associates than from any less interested motive, I was about to insist, preemptorily, upon a discontinuance of the play, when some expressions at my elbow from among the company and an ejaculation evincing utter despair on the part of Glendining gave me to understand that I had effected his total ruin under circumstance which, rendering him an object for the pity of all, should have protected him from the ill offices even of a fiend. 
what now might have been my conduct, it is difficult to say. The pitiable condition of my dupe had thrown an air of embarrassed gloom over all, and for some moments a profound silence was maintained, during which I could not help feeling my cheeks tinge with the many burning glances of scorn or reproach cast upon me by the less abandoned of the party. I will even own that an intolerable weight of anxiety was for a brief instant lifted from my bosom by the sudden and extraordinary interruption which ensued. The wide, heavy folding doors of the apartment were all at once thrown open, to their full extent, with a vigorous and rushing impetuosity, then extinguished, as if by magic, every candle in the room. Their light, in dying, enabled us to perceive that a stranger had entered, about my own height, and closely muffled in a cloak. The darkness, however, was now total, and we could only feel that he was standing in our midst. Before any of us could recover from the extreme astonishment into which this rudeness had thrown all, we heard the voice of the intruder. Gentlemen, he said in a low, distinct, never-to-be-forgotten whisper, which thrilled to the very marrow of my bones. Gentlemen, I make no apology for the behavior, because in thus behaving, I am but fulfilling a duty. You are beyond doubt, uninformed of the true character of the person who has tonight won at a card a large sum of money from Lord Glendining. I will there, I will therefore put you upon an expeditious and decisive plan of obtaining this very necessary information. Please to examine at your leisure the inner linings of the cuff of his left sleeve and the several little packages which may be found in the somewhat capacious pockets of his embroidered morning wrapper. While he spoke, so profound was the stillness that one might have heard a pin drop upon the floor. In ceasing, he departed at once and as abruptly as he had entered. Can I, shall I describe my sensations? Must I say that I felt all the horrors of the damned? Most assuredly, I had little time for reflection. Many hands roughly seized me upon the spot, and lights were immediately reprocured. A search ensued. In the lining of my sleeve were found all the court cards, essentially a cart, and in the pockets of my wrapper, a number of packs, facsimiles, of those used at our sittings, with the single exception that mine were of the species called, technically, arondes the honors being slightly convex at the ends, the lower cards slightly convex at the sides. In this disposition, the, the dupe who cuts, as customary, at the length of the pack, will invariably find that he cuts his antagonist an honor, while the gambler, cutting at the breadth, will as certainly cut nothing for his victim, which may count in the records of the game. Any burst of indignation upon this discovery would have affected me less than the silent contempt or the sarcastic composure with which it was received. Mr. Wilson, said our host, stooping to remove from beneath his feet an exceedingly luxurious cloak of rare furs, Mr. Wilson, this is your property. The weather was cold, and upon quitting my own room, I had thrown a cloak over my dressing wrapper putting it off upon reaching the scene of play. I presume it is superiority to seek here, eyeing the folds of the garment with a bitter smile, for any farther evidence of your skill. Indeed, we have enough. You will see the necessity 
I hope, of quitting Oxford at all events, of quitting instantly my chambers. Abased, humbled to the dust as I then was, it is probable that I should have resented this galling language by immediate personal violence, had not my whole attention been at that moment arrested by a fact of the most startling character. The cloak which I had worn was of a rare description of fur. How rare, how extravagantly costly, I shall not venture to say. Its fashion, too, was of my own fantastic invention, for I was fastidious to an absurd degree of coxcombry in matters of this frivolous nature. When therefore Mr. Preston reached me that which he had picked up upon the floor, and near the folding doors of the apartment, it was with an astonishment nearly bordering upon terror that I perceived my own already hanging on my arm, where I had no doubt unwittingly placed it, and that the one presented me was but its exact counterpart in every, and even the minutest possible particular. The singular being who had so disastrously exposed me had been muffled, I remembered, in a cloak. And none had been worn at all by any of the members of the party, with the exception of myself. Retaining some presence of mind, I took the one offered me by Preston. I placed it unnoticed over my own. I left the apartment with a resolute scowl of defiance. And next morning, ere dawn of day, commenced a hurried journey from Oxford to the continent in a perfect agony of horror and of shame. I fled in vain. My evil destiny pursued me as if in exaltation, and proved indeed that the exercise of its mysterious dominion had as yet only begun. Scarcely had I set in foot perished, ere had I fresh evidence of the detestable interest taken by this Wilson in my concerns. Years flew while I experienced no relief. Villain! At Rome, with how untimely yet with how spectral an officiousness, stepped he in between me and my ambition. At Vienna, too. At Berlin. At Moscow. Where, in truth, had I not bitter cause to curse him with my heart. From his inscrutable tyranny did I at length flee, panic-stricken, as from a pestilence. And to the very ends of the earth I fled in vain. And again, and again, and again, and again, in secret communion with my own spirit, would I demand the questions, Who is he? Where came he? And what are his objects? But no answer was there found. And now I scrutinized, with a minute scrutiny, the forms and the methods and the leading traits of his impertinent supervision. But even here there was very little upon which to base a conjecture. It was noticeable, indeed, that in no one of the multiplied instances in which he had of late crossed my path, had he so crossed it except to frustrate those schemes or to disturb those actions, which if fully carried out might have resulted in bitter mischief. Poor justification, this in truth, for an authority so imperiously assumed, poor indemnity for natural rights of self-agency, so pertinaciously, so insultingly denied. I had also been forced to notice that my tormentor, for a very long period of time, while scrupulously and with miraculous dexterity maintaining his whim of identity, of apparel with myself, had so contrived it, in the execution of his varied interference with my will, that I saw not at any moment the features of his face. Be Wilson what he might, this, at least, was but the veriest of affectation, or of folly. 
Could he for an instant have supposed that in my admonisher at Eton, in the destroying of my honor at Oxford, in him who thwarted my ambition at Rome, my revenge at Paris, my passionate love at Naples, or what he falsely turned my avarice in Egypt, that in this my arch enemy and evil genius I could fail to recognize the William Wilson of my schoolboy days, their namesake, the companion, the rival, the hated, the dreaded rival at Dr. Bransby's. Impossible. But let me hasten to that last eventful scene. Thus far I had succumbed supinely to the imperious domination. The sentiment of deep awe with which I habitually regarded the elevated character, the majestic wisdom, the apparent omnipresence and omnipotence of Wilson, added to a feeling of even terror, with which certain other traits in his nature and assumptions inspired me, had operated, hitherto to impress me, with an idea of my own utter weakness and helplessness and to suggest an implicit, although bitterly reluctant, submission to his arbitrary will. But of late days I had given myself up entirely to wine, and its maddening influence upon my hereditary temper rendered me more and more impatient of control. I began to murmur, to hesitate, to resist, and was it only fancy which induced me to believe that, with the increase of my own firmness, that of my tormentor underwent a proportional diminution? Be this as it may, I now began to feel the inspiration of a burning hope, and at length nurtured in my secret thoughts a stern and a desperate resolution that I would submit no longer to be enslaved. It was at Rome during the Carnival of 18 that I attended a masquerade in the palazzo of the Neapolitan Duke di Broglio. I indulged more freely than usual in the excesses of the wine table, and now the suffocating atmosphere of the crowded rooms irritated me beyond endurance. The difficulty, too, of forcing my way through the mazes of the company contributed not a little to the roughing of my temper. For I was anxiously seeking, and let me not say with what unworthy motive, the young, the gay, the beautiful wife of the aged and doting de Broglio. With a too unscrupulous confidence, she had previously communicated to me the secret of the costume in which she would be habited. And now having caught a glimpse of her person, I was hurrying to make my way into her presence. At this moment, I felt a light hand upon my shoulder, placed there, and that ever-remembered low damnable whisper within my ear. In an absolute frenzy of wrath, I turned at once upon him who had thus interrupted me and seized him violently by the collar. He was attired, as I had expected, in a costume altogether similar to my own. He was wearing a Spanish cloak of blue velvet, begirt with a waist with a crimson belt sustaining a rapier. A mask of black silk entirely covered his face. Scoundrel, I said in a voice husky with rage, with every syllable I uttered seemed as new fuel to my furry. Scoundrel, impostor, accursed villain, you shall not, you shall not dog me unto death. Follow me or I stab you right where you stand. And I broke my way from the ballroom into a small antechamber, adjoining, dragging him unresistingly with me as I went. Upon entering, I thrust him furiously from me. He staggered. He staggered against the wall, which I closed. I closed it with a door, with an oath, and commanded him to draw he hesitated but for an instant, then with a slight sigh, drew in silence and put himself upon his defense. The contest was brief indeed. I was frantic with every species of wild excitement, 
and felt within my single arm the energy and power of a multitude. In a few seconds, I forced him by sheer strength against the wainscoting, and thus getting him at mercy, plunged my sword with brute ferocity repeatedly through and through his bosom. In that instant, some person tried to latch the door. I hastened to prevent an intrusion, and then immediately returned to my undying antagonist. But what human language can adequately portray that astonishment, that horror, which possessed me at that spectacle that presented to view? The brief moment in which I averted my eyes had been sufficient to produce, apparently, a material change in the rearrangements at the upper or farther end of the room. A large mirror, so at first it seemed to me in my confusion, now stood where none had been perceptible before. And as I stepped up to it, an extremity of horror, mine own image, but with features all paled and dabbled in blood, advanced to me with a feeble and tottering gait. Thus it appeared, I say, but was not. It was my antagonist. It was Wilson, who then stood before me in the agonies of dissolution. His mask and cloak lay where he had thrown them upon the floor. Not a thread in all his raiment. Not a line in all the marked and singular lineaments of his face, which was not even the most absolute identity, mine own. It was Wilson. But he spoke no longer in a whisper, and I could have fancied that I myself was speaking while he said, You have conquered, and I yield, yet henceforward art thou also dead, dead to the world, to heaven, and to hope. In me didst thou exist, and in my death, see by this image which is thine own, how utterly thou hast murdered thyself. If you are a singer, a poet, a painter, an artist, a storyteller, a yodeler, whatever the case may be, please send me an email at stovepipestover at gmail.com. The goal is to end each story with somebody singing a song, somebody reading a poem that they wrote, somebody reading some prose, or something that they created themselves. We want to end every show with that. Each one will begin with an original song for myself. We'll continue with the story and then end with something that you contribute. So again, if you have something you want to read by the fire, sing by the fire, yodel by the fire, whatever it is, please send me an email. Stovepipestover at gmail.com You can also check out www.bluecollarsongwriting.com for other sorts of podcasts and information. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. I hope you enjoyed this story by the great Edgar Allan Poe. I hope you enjoyed his obituary read by or written by his archenemy. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of the autumn. Thanks for stopping by the fire. <laughs>